everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities to just people who bring their cars to car shows and cruise nights. I'm Randy Cardoon, and before we get going, a big thank you to the Motor Press Guild for making Talking About Cars a finalist for their 2016 Best Audio of the Year Award. Hey, if you're listening to us on iTunes, make sure you subscribe to our page. It's absolutely free, and you'll be notified every time a brand new podcast is uploaded. And if you like what we're doing, take a moment and rate us. Give us a review. You can like us on SoundCloud and on our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check us out on YouTube. This week, Angels free agent pitcher C.J. Wilson. He's a certified car guy, races cars, has several car dealerships across the Southwest, and knows something about the carpeting in a Bentley, which isn't bad for a kid who grew up surfing in Huntington Beach and didn't get a car till he was in his 20s. But first, Linda Vaughn, the former Miss Hurst shifter. She's been an ambassador for everything in automotive, from NASCAR to the NHRA to SEMA to anything else to do with the classic and high-performance car industry since she burst onto the scene in the 1950s. She has a book out now called The First Lady of Motorsports. Linda is the second coming of the Energizer Bunny. Despite suffering a heart attack earlier this year, she's been traveling all over, including going to the Indianapolis 500, SEMA in Las Vegas, and at the NHRA Finals in Pomona where I caught up with her. Hey, Linda, first off, how you feeling? I'm blessed to be here. I'm doing wonderful. And the good Lord's blessed us with this wonderful weather and all these great racers out here. I'm doing great. Thank you. All the prayers and the letters really got me through it. You've been doing a lot of traveling. You were at the Indy 500 afterwards and everything. You are you are just going strong. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I believe in working and I work a lot. I think it keeps you young and keeps you going. But I had to stop for a little while to finish my book. <laughs> well, let's talk about your book. I mean, this is the first time you wrote. What was the process like, and, and how hard, or was it easy to write a book like that? It wasn't easy. Nothing is easy, I'm telling you. It was difficult finding the pictures and, and, and corresponding with the writer and with some of the people trying to get them together. Uh, it was time-consuming. But I had a little time on my hands while I recovered from my heart attack. So, and Rob Kenman uh, would make a lot of trips. We did a lot of uh, promotions together leading up to it. Car tech was wonderful. But it's not an easy thing to do. This was my very first one. I've learned a lot what not to do on the next one. But I've also learned a lot about doing my first book. So I'm happy with it. On a scale from uh, 1 to 10, I'd give it a 9. <laughs> No, the interest, toughest thing that for some people is having to sit there and just give so much of yourself as far as telling people just about everything about you. Did you have trouble coming up with what to tell them and what not? No, I didn't have any trouble at all. He had trouble keeping up with me. I had low ET and top speed. Uh, no, it was a little difficult for him to understand Southern. <laughs> and, and there's uh, one thing or one problem that I wish they would have corrected before my heart attack, but they didn't get my copy uh, because I corrected the English in it. It makes me sound like a real redneck from Georgia, which I am, but it was kind of a ending sentences and prepositions, and a few pictures were out of, out of the right uh, area. So 
I kind of blame them for that, but you know, from a scale from one to ten, I give them a nine. That wasn't all bad for your first book. I think the layout was lovely. The pictures are wonderful. I want to thank everyone who contributed pictures and time, and my drivers and my dear friends like Mario Andretti, Chip Canassi, Danny Sullivan, Don Gartless. I can go on and on and on who helped me with it. So I'm very honored and very proud, and I hope it opens up a, an avenue for book two. Absolutely. Let me go back and let's take you back. We do this a lot on our podcast as well. First car you remember growing up might have been your folks might have been what what car was it? My first kiss was in the 57 Chevrolet. I really remember that. <laughs> first car was daddy's 40 Ford. Uh, he was uh, a law dog I called him and uh, a sheet metalist and um, most people back in Georgia were bootleggers and police so it was the way of life back then. And getting to see all those old cars, I remember climbing up in that 40 Ford. I was born in 42, and I remember they kept it and took care of it, because I think it had a special tank in it. And I remember his 56 Ford. I remember uh, the 56 Chevrolet and the 55 Chevrolet, but I fell madly in love with the 327 Chevrolet engine and did my term paper. And the teacher gave me an A minus an F. An A for my effort, the composition was good, but an F because she couldn't understand a damn thing I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Zorakis Dantoff was a hero of mine. And it's amazing that a woman like me would take shop class. I was the only girl in shop class in school. So I really loved what I was doing. And I got to go to the drag races. I knew Don Gartless through Grady Pickle in Dalton, Georgia. He'd come there and Grady would work on his engine. So it just snowballed into, look where it's taken me. I've only just begun. <laughs> where did the love of cars for you come from? Oh, uh, in the 50s. I, I would just dream about cars. I'm telling you, it was... Uh, I was dying to learn how to drive, and uh, and I started dating Jimmy Newberry, my first boyfriend. He had a beautiful turquoise and white '56 Chevy, and uh, and he told me he was going to be getting a '57. Well, honey, it only took one kiss in that '57 Chevrolet. I fell madly in love with both of them. Your first car was what? '57 Chevrolet. <laughs> Same one. Of course. <laughs> He's still my boyfriend after all these years. We see each other every Christmas, every holiday, every Thanksgiving. He's a wonderful, wonderful friend and, and always be my soulmate. Wow. Now, car-wise, car was that what, a two-door hardtop or what? Of course it was a two-door hardtop. Silly you as well. It wasn't right. a Nomad or a four-door? My nephew had the Nomad and my cousin had the Nomad and we kicked their butts. <laughs> No, we had we had the real thing, fuel injection. Woo, it was beautiful. He still has it. I told him he better will it to me because I want that car. <laughs> you know, I loved, we read the book, love the stories about it, and, and I love the stuff about how you got involved and how you first got into the whole thing with Hearst and all that stuff and got to ride the platform. Tell Talk about that. Well, I uh, entered every beauty contest I could get in in Dalton, Georgia, so I could go and travel and see the world and I won Miss Atlanta Raceway and I saw the Hearst shifter with this big brunette on it down at Atlanta Raceway and I met George Hearst and Wally Parks and when I went to Daytona in February of that year I got to see him again and I noticed that uh, he had a different girl on there and I thought he needs me because Pure Oil Company was uh, selling out and merging with Unical 76 and they were going to do away with Miss Firebirds so 
I was uh, talking to George and Mr. Parks, and he said, why don't you be in my contest? I'm going to run a nationwide contest for Miss Hearst Golden Shifter. So guess who entered the contest? Took my mama with me, because I ain't no hanky-panking with me. It's strictly business, and I absolutely cannot believe over 200 girls were in the contest, and I entered and won. I was so thrilled. I won one year. And a, and, a, and a Grand Prix Pontiac and a GTO. And, uh, and at the end of the year, I had to give that back. I wish I'd have bought it. Uh, I got smarter later on with those mobiles because I bought all of those. And uh, I didn't know the game yet. But he renewed my contract for three years. And then, then he made me a corporate company employee. So I got a turkey every Christmas. So <laughs> it snowballed into marketing degree. I went to school in the evenings and I learned marketing and sold millions and millions and millions of her shifters. About when about that time you decided, okay, I'm going to go ahead and turn this into a marketing career versus just standing on top uh, uh, as a model? First day I saw that shifter and I wanted to get them in those race cars because I bought a Hearst shifter for that 57 Chevrolet. So I knew what I was looking at. Honest Charlie was my dear friend at Honest Charlie Speed Shop. I paid $5 down and $5 a week for my first Hearst shifter. So I was bound and determined I was going to learn this business. And I just saw an opportunity that I loved. It was a love affair. Still is. Unfortunately, they've been sold so many times, they've kind of gotten away from the, the youth market the way they should be today. It's very disappointing to me that I see some cars being built and they don't have the original Hearst shifters in them. It breaks my heart that things come in from China. I'm hoping our government gets it together, brings back quality and jobs to America, and let's do it all over again. Uh, any of the cars you've had your entire life, and you've had some cool cars, would you ever want any of them back? <laughs> oh yeah, I wish I had my Hearst Pontiac back. I really do. The GTO would be wonderful, but the Hearst Pontiac that John Lingerfelter built, that engine was so sweet, and that six-speed shifter we promoted with GM, I would love to have my black and gold Hearst Pontiac back. What's in your garage right now? <laughs> A big block 455 Hearst old 75 with T-tops, and of course Hearst shifter. And of all the cars that are out there, because I know you still admire cars, you're still a car girl all the way through, what's number one on the list of uh, the car that Linda Vaughn wants someday? Oh, I don't necessarily want it someday. I want it now. I want a CTSV, black on black with black. I love that Cadillac. I got a new SS. I got the what you call the bad boy for NASCAR. I've got a, a new black SS, and I really like it. But if they'd make that in a two-door hardtop, I'd like it better. Somebody's going to read your book, and a lot of people are. What do you like people to walk away with as far as your devotion to cars and, and what really the story is about your book? The love affair I have with this industry and sport. Linda Vaughn. You can get her book, The First Lady of Motorsports, on Amazon and the usual locations. And yes, there are plenty of pictures. Now, C.J. Wilson possibly in transition, struggling with his pitching due to some baseball-related injuries, missed a lot of last season for the Angels, and has been able to get out and participate in his second love, cars. He's a free agent now. We caught up with him at the Meekum Auction in Anaheim, California, sitting in a luxurious Bentley convertible. I've got some miles in the Bentleys. I like them a lot, actually. They're, they're really, really comfortable cars, or for doing what we're doing right now, which is chilling. It's, you know, you know kicking back. Kind of like you know, and and Shirley's living room, and, yeah, and the carpet. This is the this is the the room you're not allowed to go in. This is the room <laughs> that usually has the plastic on the furniture. Exactly, it's a very nice room. I mean, I don't know what kind of wood this is, but it's it's brilliant, you know. And I guess the deal is that they take all of the they take all of the wood from the same tree, 
So it's like you cut down an entire tree for the wood in the Bentley. Really? Yeah, which is not quite environmentally sensitive, sensitive, but I guess they only make a couple thousand of these a year, so no big deal. Oh, exactly. How many trees could you lose in a year? Right. But this is so nice and so cool. And the fact that, you know, the cars that you really like, and I know you tend to go towards sports cars and, and, and racing versions of vehicles. Let's go back to the start. What's your first car memory, the ones you, your folks had maybe? This sounds terrible, but my mom getting in accidents, my mom was a bad driver, probably still is a bad driver. And my dad was a very good driver, a very responsible driver. My uh -huh. mom was really wild. Like she had a Maser How wild? She had, she had a Maserati back, like a Quattroport back in the 80s. And I mean, those things are like tin cans. They're, they're buckets, they're awful. But um, she was, you know, she had a friend that was trying to convince her to put nitrous in it and stuff. <laughs> she was nuts. My dad had a, um, he always had kind of different cars. He had a 450 SEL Mercedes that was like super, super, super clean. I mean, it wasn't worth anything, but it was amazingly clean. He had an old El Camino. You know, at one point he had a like a conversion van that had like the bed in the back and all that stuff, and that's when we'd go on road trips. That's what we'd take. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like an eclectic mix. No, not like we didn't have really nice cars, I would say. But my dad knew that I loved cars and he really liked cars, so we would actually go to the different dealerships. Yeah, we'd drive around and look at them and kind of you know kick the tires and all that stuff. I, I want to go back to your mom for a second because as you were talking about that, I suddenly had this vision of. Like every time she got to a red light, she was gonna like burn off the starting gate or something like that? In, in the Maserati, yeah. I mean, I remember we were driving down uh, Pacific Coast Highway one time and she was singing like some crappy 80s music and like ripping. <laughs> and I'm like probably eight or nine years old. I'm in the front seat and I'm like, mom, there's a red light, there's a red light, ah! And I like grabbed the steering wheel uh -huh. because I knew she wasn't paying attention. She was so in the song that she missed everything. But I realized distracted driving is, is dangerous driving, you know, mm -hmm. at a young age. So that's why for me, you know, I tend to go for radio delete in a lot of my sports cars. Really? As an option, yeah. I think the three out of the last four Porsches I've bought were radio delete because mm -hmm. I'm just a Luddite and that's so, what I like. So basically your mother was, instead of doing the do what I tell you, she was doing it by example, t teaching you the benefits of distracted driving. Yeah, she was basically like, don't do as I do. You uh, know what I mean? And then my dad was actually very responsible. He's a good driver. He, you know, doesn't get in accidents, doesn't get speeding tickets. He's very, like, cautious. But at the same time, he worked on a pit crew for a race team. So that's what got me into it. I used to go to races for sprint uh, sprint cars and midgets and stuff like that, um, you know, when I was a little kid. So I was around speed and around racing, and then, you know, I always wanted to do it. But my first car was exactly the opposite of a race car. It was a 1983 240D Mercedes with a stick shift. It was a four-speed had 60 horsepower, the car weighed 5,000 pounds. It was the slowest turd ever. And it was like, I would have to be in second gear to get up a hill. I mean, it had no power at all. So why that car? Uh, I didn't have a choice. This is like, you know, you're in high school, you're on a budget, Yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I don't have money raining out of the sky. I gotta buy something for two or $3,000. So what. was this your choice or was it the folks' choice? Dad's choice, dad's uh, choice because he thought it was safe and then Eventually, I got I had a really good run of good report cards, good grades, and my mom decided that it was time to get me another another car, so she got me a Volvo. So my first like really car that I didn't let anybody else drive was a Volvo. Now a nice Volvo or the typical. It was, it was at this Volvo. time. It was like probably it was like maybe six years old. Uh huh. So it was decent. Yeah. Um, it was a 940 Turbo. It was midnight okay. blue. 
Okay. And it had midnight blue um, interior. Well, that's nice. Fabric, and then midnight blue plastic. I mean, it was all midnight blue. Like, if you had a phobia of water or sharks or anything like that, this was not the car, because it was like, you're driving the ocean, you know? It's the Swedish ocean. That's what it was. That's great. Now, so is that the car you took to the prom? Uh, no, I didn't have a car in high school. I That was freshman year of college that I had that one. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, prom... I took I took somebody else's car. I, oh, okay. I was I was I was a passenger. I That's was, okay. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with being a passenger. No, no, no. It's just you know I I didn't have a I didn't have access to cars as enough when I was a kid in high school. My next door neighbor was older, had a car, so we just went everywhere together. Uh-huh. And um, I just saved up, you know, modest means. So I didn't really I couldn't just really throw down on stuff. I rode my bike until I was like. 17, 18, you know what I mean? Wow. That's true. And you grew up in Southern California. Yeah. Um, Huntington Beach. Surfer-like? Yep. Okay. So that lifestyle, that whole thing, you really... Yeah. You get on get on your beach cruiser, go to the beach, take your bodyboard, take your surfboard, whatever. Uh-huh. Um, go to Huntington. I would always, you know, go bodyboard and surf in Huntington. I cracked one of my ribs at the wedge trying to be a hero mm-hmm. when I was way over my skis in that right. regard, skill-wise. But, um, yeah, I grew up around the water, and then I really kind of re-engaged with cars through video games. That's really where I got back into it and started getting more knowledge. Because I was always reading the car magazines and stuff sure, like that. Sure. But, you know, you can't really afford to drive anything when you're a kid, but right. they're all on PlayStation. Mm-hmm. So I had Gran Turismo, and then I got Forza, and then I started really driving and, and taking a technical approach to my driving. You may be the first person ever on talking about cars that got interested in cars through video games. Well interested in terms of like knowing which kind of cars I was really going to gravitate towards uh-huh. you know I, I think I'd, I'd always really really like cars but at the same time I didn't know there's so many choices you know you have to narrow it down you can only buy so many things at a time and for me it was like 0.5 I could buy 0.5 of what I wanted so I really had to kind of you know aim that and focus on that and um, eventually through baseball you know I ended up getting a really nice signing bonus when I left college and shopped for about 14 months and then I found I found a really nice uh, Porsche that I got for myself. That's cool. Now, when you went to the Rangers, did you have cars in bulk? Did you have more than one Porsche or did, Porsche or did well, you Well, yeah, so like my, my my first Porsche I kept for probably 4 years and then um, I had a uh, when I was in the minor leagues, I had a Volvo. I had I had a, the second Volvo cuz my first Volvo got crashed into. I was at my girlfriend's place. I came out the next morning, uh, the car was an accordion, it was smashed, oh and it was like 100 feet to the right of where I parked it. I, was I like, hate it when that I happens. totally did not do that. It was like that scene in Beverly Hills Cop when he's like, yo, make sure you park this somewhere nice, because all this happened last time I was here. You know, that's like, that's what happened. Wow. And um, so then I got, I got an 850 Turbo, which was a little bit of an upgrade. It had leather, it was right. a little bit faster, a little more modern. Um, and then I had that car all the way until I was probably... Uh, 26 or something like that. So oh, okay. I, I, those are my two cars. I had the Porsche. I had a 993 uh, C2S. Was a 97 that I got off a guy in Santa Margarita. I had that car and I had the red. So I had two red cars. I had the red Porsche and the red Volvo. Um, I had my Volvo in the minor leagues uh, one summer. The air conditioning ran out, and they were um, they, they they had promoted me from uh, the Florida State League to the Texas League. Right. But I had to drive oh. in, in the middle of summer through oh, the South man. with no AC with leather seats. I was. I was like, like this, like leaning out the window, like trying to, trying to get airflow. You know what I mean? It was terrible. It was uh, funny. And and for the Rangers, I mean, what was that? What what was the Triple A team at the time? Because they've changed since, I believe. Yeah. Well, I I skipped Triple A. I went to Double A. Okay. And so in 2005, that's when I made it to the major league. So I was okay. tw- I was 24 and a half years old. Um, I actually 
at the time I was driving a, another diesel Mercedes because I told myself that I wasn't going to drive my Porsche anymore until I made it to the majors. Mm -hmm. So I was so upset at myself for getting injured that I put my Porsche in storage mm -hmm. for uh, about a year. Because I, I bought it when I was in the minors, because I flew through the minors. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make the big leagues, this is going to be so great. And I went out and bought the car, and then I had it for, you know, uh, maybe six or seven months, and then I got hurt. And then mm -hmm. I was like, mm, maybe I don't deserve this because I'm in the minors. So I put it away, I drove a, a diesel Mercedes coupe at okay. 300 CD. Um, and that was kind of my, my go, go around car. And then I had actually given my Volvo to my mom. So when I got called up to the majors, I rolled in in a 1984 diesel coupe, you know, and everyone was like, who, who is this kid? Like, what is his deal? You know, cause everyone else has had trucks. They had H2s, they had Tahoes, they yeah. had big Escalades, stuff uh -huh. like that. And so here I am in the diesel Mercedes. I mean, not, I'm noticing a definitive lack of American cars. Do you just not like American marks or what? No, it just that, you know, I felt like at the time, if I could get a, if I could get a car that, um, I was going to, that was going to be economical and bulletproof. Like I felt that the diesel Mercedes at the time, it was a couple thousand dollars. It was not an expensive car. But I actually, it, it had 200,000 miles on it, ran like a clock. It wow. was amazing. So I just I just really like the style of a lot of those cars. I've always liked, you know, Stingrays and some of the 60s Corvettes. Um, I, I really like those cars a lot. But that's not practical to have when you're it's your only car. You know what I mean? You can't depend on a 50-year-old a car to get you True. from place to place. At least I couldn't. Um, and so I, you know, I... I, I really didn't get an American car until I got a Ford F-250 diesel mm -hmm. um, to, to use basically as like a get around car in Texas as, and also as a tow truck. So I towed as my, a tow truck. yeah, for my race car. So oh, I towed okay. like a race car behind it. Sure. And I love that car. I still, I miss it. It was a, the 7.3 liter is a really good diesel. I like that a lot. It got great gas mileage. I put 50 or 60,000 miles on it. I got it used. I mean, it, it already had like almost 100,000 miles on it when I got it. And it just ran like a clock. It was great. When did the racing bug bite you? Oh, man. I, I started racing a little bit when I was a kid. I did go-karts. And then um, the harsh reality of budget stopped, st stopped us, I guess, from going too far. So then I was like, you know what? Let me do something a little more realistic with my life. I'll just play baseball. Maybe that'll be, that'll be okay. So I uh, didn't really do any kind of racing at all. Like I said, I just did the video game stuff. And then once I was about 26 or 27... I had gotten myself um, in with some guys that were, uh, I guess, doing track days all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a track day and I was like, wait a second, you can just drive your car on the track? Like no rules? And they're like, well, yeah, you're not like allowed to hit people and stuff. I mean, what are you talking about? No rules. But but I was like, well, I can, so I can just sign up here, pay 80 bucks or 100 bucks and then I'm in? And they're like, yeah, you're in. And I'm like, oh, this is the best thing ever. So that's kind of how it really started. And then from there I realized, you know, I need an instructor and then I was like, well, forget this. I'm just going to go to racing school. Okay. So, so I did the Skip Barber Racing School. Okay. I did the uh, the Jim Russell Racing School. I did Bondurant. I did Dirtfish Rally Car School up in Seattle. So wow. I did. I've driven kind of all the different disciplines: Formula cars, sports cars, rally cars. Um, I've done everything besides trucks, pretty much everything. So you've done those four. I don't think we've ever had a chance to ask this question. Is so you've been the, with the experience of the four. Which one really did you like better? Um, the top two, I would say, I like the I like the rally car school. I like Dirtfish. I thought it was fantastic because you're driving in the gravel, in the mud, in the rain, in the snow, whatever whatever's happening, you're in it and you're going hard. So it teaches you how to make the car handle, and I think that that type of car control 
it benefits anybody. Mm-hmm. Like anybody that's going to think, oh, what school should I do? Should do one that emphasizes just general car control. As a skill, okay. if you can only have one skill, you have a great car control, you can hop in anything and drive it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can save a spin, you can save, an, you know, you can figure out if the road's icy, you can figure out how to steer around that. And then for, from the instruction quality standpoint, I would say the, the Jim Russell School was unbelievable because the cars that we drove were Formula 3 cars. Okay. Carbon chassis, sequential transmission, downforce, amazing brakes. It was the most spectacular driving experience of my life. And uh, actually, I got along so well with one of the coaches that I eventually hired him to drive for my race team. Really? Yeah. So um, I'd say, you know, that was a really good connection. In, in Very good. That. Very good. So you've had this opportunity to learn racing, so you'd eventually got involved in your own race team. Yeah. Um, Go back to the uh, first time you went to that one of the race schools. Mm -hmm. Which first one was? First one was Skip Barber. Okay, so you get behind the wheel at Skip Barber School. Talk about what that first day of experience was like. Well, it's kind of funny because I'd been doing track days for about a year and a half. And when I first started doing track days, I was in a modified Porsche with like 600 horsepower. It was preposterous. It was too fast. I mean, a novice in a 600 horsepower car, like forget it, spinning off the track, you know, like sliding across the grass. I mean, I was having a great time, but a lot of people thought I was a liability. So then I got a more responsible car. I sold, I didn't sell it, but I, I got a GT3 uh, Porsche, okay. and that one only had 415 horsepower. Only. 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 So I was like, oh, this is so easy, so easy to drive. But then I did the Miata Racing School, okay. and then it was the same thing where, you know, I felt like, wow, this car is really approachable. So now it's only about it's all about the competition. It's all about the skill development because I'm not really like hanging on for dear life in the Miata. You know what I mean? Um, but that being said, I realized that you didn't have to be in a $200,000 car or $100,000 car to have fun. You could be in a smaller race car. And then it's, if you're surrounded by other small race cars, it's a race. And if you're racing, you're having a good time. So I was probably the most aggressive driver and the um, most experienced driver in the class. So when we did like our little practice races and stuff like that, I smashed everybody. Um, but then... Uh, smashed everybody, okay. Yeah, um, and then when I went to, then I was like, okay, that's the Miata school, I need to do formula car school. So then I did the formula car school, and then it was like a whole nother level for me. You know, once I got, started driving the formula cars, I realized there's a purity inherent to formula cars that you don't get in any other sports car, street car, or anything like that. And that's what I just focused on that, and that's what I raced for a couple of years. You know, you pitch for the Rangers, pitch for the Angels. Do these guys throw in things in your contract about, well, you know, you probably shouldn't be driving in these oh, situations? Oh, yeah, no, there's no, yeah, nothing in there says that you're allowed to do it. In fact, it says that you're not supposed to do it. It also says that if you get hurt and you miss time on the field from doing it, yeah. that you're fired. So that's bad because okay. our contracts were always guaranteed as baseball players. So it sure. with, with that, that was a non-guarantee at that point, basically. So I knew that I had to be somewhat responsible behind the wheel. I couldn't just be cavalier and just smash into people and right. stuff like that. So I had to really be safe, you know, safe approach to it. I, I learned how to build speed and, and to be patient so that I wasn't like going out there the first time at a track trying to break the lap record. I was like, okay, let me really learn this. Let me figure this out and take my time. Anybody from the ball clubs ever say anything to you about that? Like, Yeah, so- yeah of course. Like the, John Daniels, who's the GM of the Rangers, we went to lunch one time and he was like, so tell me about this racing stuff. What's do you actually like what happens? I'm like, well, you know, I'm like driving a car and there's like 30 other cars and we're all trying to win. And he goes, but you're wait, there's 30 other cars. I'm like, well, sometimes I mean, sometimes there's like 15, sometimes there's like 40, you know, just whatever. (laughs) And he was he thought it was the funniest thing because I was 
I was so into it, you know, and he was like, you know, this is really dangerous, isn't it? And I'm like, well, you know, I drive a car, it's got a roll cage, you know, all this stuff. But it really, nobody cared at all when I was a relief pitcher. When I was a reliever, no one cared. I was totally expendable. They were like, oh, we'll just get a new one of those. We'll just pick one up at the store. (laughs) But when I was a... um, when I was a uh, you know starting pitcher, when I transitioned into that, that's when they were kind of like, "Whoa, hang on a second. Yeah. That's my salary went up. I was all of a sudden making like a couple million dollars a year, and they're like, they saw me as an investment. All of a sudden, I was right. like, "Oh, they care. That's cool. <laughs> I'm not just a piece of fruit anymore that's going to dry up and just go away. Because uh-huh. that's really how you feel a lot of times as, a, as an athlete. Is you right. feel like you're just kind of an expendable, you know, uh, commodity. So you know that's just kind of the way it goes. But yeah, that's when they started kind of getting in my case. But at that point, I had sort of advanced to a level of driving where I had graduated from making stupid mistakes. Right. And, you know, all the dumb stuff that a lot of people do. It happens in the first 10 or 15 races. That being said, I would still remember I was at Road Atlanta racing in the Skip Barber Formula Car Series. And uh, I saw a guy crash right in front of me, and he, he his car flipped. His Formula Car flipped. Yeah. So there was, like, wheels flying all over the place. Oh, and I was, I was like, well, all right, here's how it goes. You know what I mean? And I just remember that, you know, like I've had, I had certain moments where I was like, God, this is so stupid. I should put this off for a couple more years. I really, this is really stupid. But I'm like, nah. you know what I mean? Going yeah. through the corner. So, you know, you had moments like that. I mean, I crashed a car at Laguna Seca. You know, I, I crashed a couple cars in, you know, in races and stuff like that. But so you've said basically that you've crashed in some of the coolest racetracks everywhere. Is there oh, any place? Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're, is it like a lot of I've only of guys... crashed twice. I mean, I've only crashed it, like, I've crashed three times on the racetrack. Once it was at Laguna Seca, 100% my fault. Another time at Laguna Seca, somebody wiped me out on the first lap. That was totally his fault. And he was, like, 17 at the time, and his mom came up to me. And it's like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you need to teach your son how to drive. He's a he's an effing liability out there. <laughs> I was getting on his on, on her case and everything like uh-huh. that. And then, um, you know, for, uh, I, I had a crash at uh, VIR in Virginia. Mm-hmm during a 13-hour race. So it was really rainy, it was kind of slick, and I went off the track a little bit and I got stuck, I had a Miata. So it was really, it's like $400 worth of damage. It wasn't really a big deal. But the, the crash I had at Laguna was, with the, the first one was a pretty big one. It, wow. was, it, was, it was kind of a bummer. But, um, and then I had a brake failure at uh, Infineon or Sonoma, whatever it's called. And I turned, turned one up the hill, um, going into turn two, I couldn't, go to turn two because I, I lost the brakes and I went straight into the tire barrier at 100. Oh, wow. Um, What's and, that like? Uh, you know, if you're if you're wearing the Hans device and you're strapped in there tight with all the belts and everything, it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been lucky I haven't flipped a car or caught a car on fire or anything like that, you know? Yeah. So, hey, never say never, though. Yeah. And I have a funny feeling. Knock on wood. You, knock on some of this really nice Bentley Really wood. nice Bentley wood, which yeah. came from one tree, I understand. One tree, yeah. One. That's why it's matched. That's why it looks so nice. That's, that's very nice. What is in your garage right now? Uh, in my garage at my house, um, I have a 2016 GT3 RS Porsche. I have a uh, 1995 993 GT2, which is a super rare car. There's only like probably 20 of those in the country, maybe wow. less. Um, that's probably my nicest car. How did you get your hands on that? Uh, I found it in Japan. So, you know, one of the things I do is I, I'm a car dealer. Um, you know, it's like if you like cooking, then you become a chef. If you like cars, you become a salesperson. So I started my own car dealership business a couple of years ago. Now I've got 11 dealerships. 
um, kind of worked my way up into that. And, yeah, you uh, have a McLaren hat. Is, it, is that what you my, sell mostly? My store, yeah, okay. McLaren Scottsdale. Um, I sell a lot of exotic cars, but I started with Mazda. So I have I started racing with Mazda, won a couple races, you know, had some teams that won some championships with the race team in the Mazdas. So I'm very loyal to them. Uh, so I have four Mazda dealerships. I've got a McLaren dealership, uh, BMW bikes, um, KTM bikes, Suzuki, Husqvarna, Zero electric bikes. Right. Um, and then I'm in the middle of an acquisition right now where I'm buying a Porsche and an Audi store. Anything in Southern California? Uh, yeah, I have uh, three stores in Southern California. I've got a store in Ventura, uh, motorcycles in uh, Marietta. So mm-hmm. I have BMW and KTM right there. And then I'm buying a store in Northern California right now. There's a lot of people that talk about these electric bikes and they don't think they have any oomph to them. No, they totally have oomph. They, they have a lot of torque. So off the line, they're very fast. They might not have top end though, because I think at the end of the day, they need like multiple gears in the transmission in order to keep accelerating. Right. Um, but the instant torque from an electric bike is hilarious. Like KTM makes an electric dirt bike called the Freeride. And I rode that recently because I was just like, I want to see what this is all about. You know, let me check it out. So I'm riding in the dirt and it's like, you know, and you really have to have, you know, yourself put together because it's they, the dirt bike rides like a 450 off the line. And it's I mean, it's got a lot of torque. The, the street bikes, like the zero bikes, you know, I think a lot of people use them for commuting in the city because they feel like it's super practical and they just get from place to place. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think they keep evolving the electric bike to the point that, you know, they're starting to become super fun. And, you know, because it doesn't have an engine, doesn't have moving parts, you know, they can really put the battery and mess with it and put it wherever they want to kind of distribute the weight. How long would a battery last, though? I mean, can you actually take it up into the hills? I mean, yeah, yeah. Where I mean, are you, you going like, to? There's no charging stations in the hills. Yeah, but you can, but you coast downhill. You can do like 100 plus miles. Yeah. You know, on a on a on a really good electric bike, you can okay. do it like at least 100 miles. Okay. So that's, I mean, I think that's kind of the magic number because, at that point, you know, you're talking about. Um, kind of the tolerance for where people can ride a lot of people can't ride more than two or three hundred miles straight through you know but the uh the ktm and some of the other ones they're actually working on making swappable batteries oh really so you can kind of ride somewhere swap them out and ride back so so you mentioned two of your cars what else do you have in your garage uh, mclaren p1 uh, which is kind of the crown jewel for me and then um that's the three cars in the garage and then i've got a mazda cx9 the new one as my kind of daily driver my wife has a Range Rover. That's her kind of daily driver slash family car. So we just had a newborn. So uh, we needed something that was, you know, workable for a, uh, a stroller and, you know, all the all the baby gear. Because babies have so much stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not just a baby by itself is very portable. But then you got the stroller and the car seat and the bottles. So which car is the baby mobile? That's the Range. I the see. Range Rover. That's my wife's car. So. I see. Um, but I have a 911R on the way, and I'm very excited about that. Very so, cool. Is, she, is your wife... A car person? Oh, she loves cars, yeah. Um, you know, she really likes, I have a Mustang 350R, uh-huh. and um, she loves that, and to the point that she drives completely erratically and illegally in that, and Wait. goes way too fast. What is it about the women in the Wilson household? Wait. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's a, uh, she's Brazilian, so she has some of that hot Italian blood, right. and just loves going fast. So mm-hmm. I sent her to racing school, She's been to the Porsche school. She's been to the Ford Mustang school in Utah. Yeah. She's done the Lamborghini Winter School. Really? So driving Huracans in the snow. Oh, you my. Know what I mean? So she's legit. She's pretty legit. That's very cool. Yeah. That'll score you points. Of all the cars you've had, and you've had a lot, it sounds like. Yeah, too many. Is probably. there one car that maybe you say to yourself, man, I wish I could get that back? 
yeah, my, my turbo, my 993 turbo that I had back in the day. Um, it was a beast. It was an animal. I loved it. And it was super durable. Um, the only downside about it was the guy I sold it to ended up getting hit by a, like it by another car. Oh. So, you know, after that, I was kind of like, I don't want it back. Yeah. I, you know, because I've actually bought a couple of cars back as, you know, as I was um, kind of, you know, working my way through the baseball system. I'd have to sell a car to get another car. But then eventually I was able to just kind of pile up. And so now I've got, you know, I guess probably 12 cars or something like that. Um, I, I had a Viper, I had the ACR, um, and I, I sold that and then used the proceeds from that to get the Mustang. Um, I'm really looking forward to the new Ford GT whenever that comes out. I have, sure. a, I have a Raptor on the way, so I've gotten more American cars as I've gotten older. That's pretty wild, though. It sounds like you have so many cars on the way. Of course, you work in the business, so yeah, you but, have access but to But you that. have to, like, these, some of these cars are so special, you have to order them so far in advance. Yeah. Like, my Ford GT doesn't come until 2019. Oh, man. They're like, hey, congrats, you got one. I'm like, cool, when's it coming in? They're like, 2019. I'm like, sick. I, <laughs> all right, we'll see you in 36 months, you know? Yeah. So it, it's kind of funny sometimes because the special edition cars, which are the ones that I tend to like anyways, you have to get them so far in advance that it kind of pollutes the ownership experience a little uh -huh. bit. So you just have to, like, forget that they're coming and then have a couple different cars, you know? So you may have actually already answered this because we all have the top 10 cars we want someday. Yeah. Uh, you okay. probably have answered this, but what is number one on your list? Uh, well, I can give you all 10 really quick because I think about this all the time. <laughs> I'm a numbers guy. all 10. So number one, McLaren F1. Number, okay. number two, 275 uh, short nose alloy body Ferrari. Right. Number three, uh, the new Ford GT. Number okay. Number four, an original GT40. Um, from number, the 60s? Yeah, from the 60s. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Um, I, I had a chance to drive one recently and it was unbelievable. Uh, number five, I want a Stingray uh, split window. 63. Yep. Okay. I, I want a, um, uh, I want an old school Porsche uh, Speedster, you know, like a 56. or Like a James Dean's kind of? He had a 550, but uh, right. I think like a 356. Okay. I would love a 550, but those are, million, those are like $5 million yeah. now. They're yeah. crazy money. Yeah. Um, I really like the F40, the Ferrari F40. I think mm -hmm. that's number seven. Mm -hmm. um, number eight would be some kind of a uh, like a, a wacky ranch truck, just like a, like a Unimog or something preposterous. Oh, okay. Like okay. You can just like mow over like berms and stuff like that. Sure. Um, and then I've seen Unimogs. It's super, they're awesome. Supercar Sunday. They've got them in Woodland Hills. They're huge. They're, they're huge. Like, they're yeah. Preposterous. Yes. But I like that. Yeah, yeah. I like how preposterous they are. Yeah. Um, and then I would say there's a. This is nine. I would like a a 300 SL Mercedes. Like not the Gullwing, but I like the Roadster. Oh. I want okay. the Roadster. I, because okay. I I mean you know. The, the Gullwing, it's like bad airflow. I mean, they're prettier probably, but they're not as functional and I like driving the cars. Okay. And then I'd say number 10 all-time cars, if I could have anything in the world, um, I would pick a, man, this is a hard one. Because I've had a bunch of these, I've had a bunch of cars and some of them I bought them and didn't like them that much. I don't know, I think maybe a, I'd like a vintage race car, you know, something like, that Indy I, car? Or? No, no, no. I well, actually, yeah. Eleven formula, formula car. Okay. I like a Formula One car. I like a vintage Formula One car from this from the uh, from the eighties. Okay. That's why? What, why the eighties? Because the eighties were like that was when the cars were still really 
like slippery and they could go really really fast they're still kind of dangerous but they had huge tires okay and they also still had an h pattern gearbox okay so once you got into the 90s like 91 92 they started doing the paddle shift ones right and then that's a whole mess because it's harder to get people to rebuild them and then there's electronics involved whereas the 80s ones were very very basic still in a lot of ways i mean they had tunnels and ground effects and some of them had carbon fiber chassis like the mclarens but for the most part, they were pretty approachable from a driving perspective. You could, like, I could get in one and go drive it, you know? And mm -hmm. that's the one of the things that, for me, everything that I have, everything I've ever wanted is something I can drive. How big is your garage? I have a three-car garage, I have a three-car warehouse, um, and then I, I usually leave the SUVs outside. My dad's a car guy, so I keep one at his house sometimes. And then I keep like one at a dealer, one at the race shop, two at the race shop, something like that. So, so you can salt them away all over Orange County, basically. No, I mean, I have them in Texas. I have them in Arizona. I have them in, you know, I have them everywhere. So I'm going to, once I get, I'll probably have a couple in Northern California. Then I'll have some in Southern California. I'll spread them all out. Because if you have them all in one place, yeah. you know, then uh, you get kind of used to them and maybe even tired of them. And then you want to get rid of them and get new ones. Okay. So for me, you know, even though I've, I sell a lot of cars, um, that I, you know, I'll get a car, I'll sell it because I always, I'm trying to upgrade to a better version of the same one. Right. So, um, you know, I, I just think that if you have them all in one place, then it, it's hard because you can't really maintain them all. Right. But you can have one somewhere and then someone could be responsible for that car. Like I have two cars, three cars in my, in my shop in Austin. Um, I've got a, a GT3 RS, I've got a project car and I've got a Nissan Skyline like an old one. I have a right-hand drive Nissan Skyline, a real oh, Japanese wow. car. Okay. So how hard um, was that to import? It's not. I mean, you know, they're like twenty grand for like a really nice one. It's a nineteen ninety, so it's not really that fancy. I mean it's very much a regular car. And for those who don't know, the Nissan Skyline came out of Japan and it, it's almost like trying to it get... It didn't even come here. We weren't even allowed to have them here right. until they came out with the 2008. Right. So that's the first time that they came to America legitimately as an American car. But the old ones, all the cars from the 90s, they have really nice suspensions. They're nice to drive. They don't beat you up. You know, you can like, you can go do miles in them, but it's funny because you're driving on this side of the road and you pull up to a stoplight and then someone's like looking at you and they're like, the hell there's you know people look over from that side and they're like wait there's nobody in the driver's seat shifting with your left hand gets a little bit you know takes a little bit getting used to it. and yeah and you always mess up the the turn signals and the the windshield wipers it's always it's backwards you know right so right. I, I have a cousin that has uh, one of those falcons from yeah. australia yes those so are awesome yeah they're incredible and what he does is it was right wheel drive he had one and he used to take his daughter and he'd, he'd pick up a spare steering wheel yeah so she'd be sitting here like this so just and look then, like, and people so, will be like, oh, God, get out of the way. Exactly. So she'd be sitting here like this and waving at people. And it's not connected. The wheel's not connected. Right. So she'd be sitting here like this, and he'd be going, hey, how you doing? Great. Oh, my God. Yeah, because he could be like this, steering from with his hands down below. Exactly. Like, and awesome. nobody, nobody's looking at him, even though he has a steering wheel on the driver's side. So that's always kind of fun to watch. So there's all sorts of cars out there that... that are so different, yet really so fun. Well, that's why it's so cool to come to the auction, because you see so many people that are passionate about particular cars. You know, you see Chevy guys, Dodge guys, Ferrari guys, truck guys, you know what I mean? There's Shelbys, there's Porsches, there's everything. And so, you know, every time I come to one of these things, I always feel like I learned something because I see another car that's like a rare car that I wasn't really aware sure. of. You know, I didn't know that that particular combination was like, one of 40 or one of 30 or whatever. So it's really kind of cool to see that and, and see some of these guys, because this is the future for me. I'm going to be one of these guys walking around with my grandkids, you know, showing, ah, dad used to have one of those, you know what I mean? 
So I would be remiss if I did not ask, free agent this season, what's your scenario? How are you doing as far as recovering from the surgery? What's you, how many more years you really want to play? Yeah, you know, I mean, baseball is one of those things where you can love it all you want, but it doesn't love you back. And I think, you know, having my fifth arm surgery now uh, has shown me that, you know, professional sports on any level, are they're brutal on your body. So trying to get the most out of yourself as an athlete is very taxing. And, you know, the one thing that I've always really believed in is that I don't want to play for money as a motivator. I want to play for the love of the game. I want to play to compete. I want to play to contribute to a team. And so I'm still kind of on the process of recovery right now where I'm, I'm getting stronger. I'm starting to get more regular in my workouts, get more on a normal schedule and less of a rehab schedule. But at the same time, once I start throwing again, I think that's when I'll really know once I start getting off the mound or throwing long toss, how much, you know, how much dust is in here and how much, how much oil is in there, you know? Yeah, and if yeah. I have more oil than dust, then I can keep going and, you know, take it on a year by year basis. I think I'm, you know, I'll, I'll end up signing a one year contract. Um, and, you know, I'm at the point now where because of my, the success I've had as a player, um, you know, I can kind of go where I want to go. If I have multiple offers, I don't have to take a job. I can kind of sit around a little bit and just keep getting myself in shape and the longer I wait the healthier I'll be so if I don't sign right away I know that later in the summer the teams will still need pitching it's not like there's lefty pitchers all over the place oh sure I oh, have sure. my track record so um, ideally I'd play in a place that fits my criteria for an awesome city a competitive team um, I would really like to try playing in the National League because I've never really been there full-time and I grew up as a hitter, so I think part of me just can't get rid of that that idea, you know. So have you, have some teams just kept in touch? I guess considering that's really all they can do with this. Yeah, point. I mean, well, yeah, they can make offers and stuff, but it'd be kind of it wouldn't be prudent for them because they, you know, I think some teams really want to see uh, they want to see where I'm at. They want to see what um, you know what the procedure looked like when they did my shoulder and all that. But I, I I know confidently that my shoulder feels great. It feels way better than it did before surgery. So. I know it's just a matter of time before I get back to normal or whatever. Um, that being said, you know, my wife and I had a daughter about eight months ago, so that's a big factor in the decision because, you know, we want to be able to spend time together. You know, you want to just have a baby and then just like, oh, see you in three months. Yeah. It's yeah. not really like the, the family life that I want for, for me. Um, and I waited a long time to have kids because I was waiting for the end of my career. So I think if I was an outfielder or maybe a different position, I could probably play till I was in my 40s, you know? Um, so for a long time still, because I'm just a very fit guy and I take care of my body and play really hard and all that. But I think as a pitcher with the kind of wear and tear I've put myself through, you know, maybe two more years, three more years max. I don't think I can play. I don't think I can stomach it any more than that. You got a racing career ahead of you. Yeah, exactly. And that's the other thing too, is, you know, with all the options that I have to, to drive and, you know, with my own race team and stuff like that, you know, part of me says that as I've built up the car dealership business sort of as a backup plan, you know, or as the post-baseball career, I'm already there. I'm already at that point where I could walk away and, and just go race and just go sell cars, and, and that could be my career from now on. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily be upset with that if that happened because what's not to love about cars? Like, it's not like it's not like someone said, hey, you know, you have to go do this job, and it's a job that you don't want. It's, right. it's a job that I do want, I love. And, you know, I really enjoy connecting with people. Someone comes in with a car, they want a car. You know, I really I really feel that. I know what it's like. I've been in their shoes on any car that they've, they've bought. You know, my, we grew up having to drive economy cars in my family. 
and you know that was what I started with as a salesperson. So you know I really do understand all the different aspects of the car business. It, it is ironic talking about that while we're sitting in a Bentley convertible. Yeah, though, yeah. You know, <laughs> economy cars in a Bentley. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, we tried to get a Subaru, and somehow I couldn't find one here. Subaru convertibles are really rare. Although there yeah. was a Fiat Jolly floating around here. Did you see that? It's funny because there's always a Fiat Jolly. There's always one. There's always one dude that brings a Fiat Jolly <laughs> to the auction. And there's always one dude that buys it. It's like the weirdest little car that always sells. Like they don't, they don't ever miss. Yeah. They just hit every time. It's great. Angels free agent pitcher C.J. Wilson. By the way, you can see our interview in the Bentley. Just go to our Talking About Cars YouTube channel and our Talking About Cars Facebook page. Hey everybody! If you haven't subscribed to us yet here on iTunes, do it now. You'll be alerted when a new podcast is uploaded, and give us a review. It's good for you and good for us because the more people that listen to us and more people that review us, well, we'll climb the rankings of iTunes Automotive Podcasts, and we're aiming high. And again, thank you to the Motor Press Guild for making talking about cars a finalist for Best Audio of the Year. If you want to listen to the nominated episode, it's Talking About Cars 44 with Wayne Carini and the late George Barris, including his celebration of life out at Forest Lawn. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.